This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We have a great show for you this evening, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to have my guest with me in the studio, and she'll be joining us in just a moment. Her name is Jacqueline DiGregorio, and Jacqueline is a speaker, author, business strategist, and the founder of Clarity and Action Consulting. And we're going to learn all about Jacqueline's journey to uh, the role she has today and, and a few challenges she overcame while um, a student at Georgetown University. Uh, Just a reminder, during the commercial breaks, you'll hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors bringing you valuable information on your health, finance, technology, leadership, and diversity. So be sure to stay with us. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter uh, and get our podcast each week, you can do so by visiting womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And as always, please stay connected with us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Women to Watch as well. And now, Jacqueline, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's truly an honor. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have you here today. And we're going to have a great conversation that I think will be particularly inspiring for young women. And uh, you and I had a wonderful call uh, probably a month or so ago before meeting up today. And I'm impressed by you for several reasons. But one in particular is the age that you seem to um, develop such a wise way to look at life. Um, But let's start with your upbringing in Springfield, Pennsylvania. Um, You were the youngest of three girls. And my first question was, you know, did you have pressure to follow in the footsteps of older sisters growing up? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I always think about how my childhood has influenced me and brought me to where I am today. I read a lot of personal development books, and they always talk about those critical years when you're young. And I think the biggest thing for me was that I was different. I was different from everyone else. My mom says that. I was two years old and I wouldn't watch TV like all the other kids would sit there and they'd be glued and I would just be so over it. And she's like, is there something wrong with her? And so I think I just always had some sort of internal sense of being really driven. And when I told friends in college how my parents were really mad at me for getting a job, they were like, what? My parents would be so happy if I got a job. But my whole life, my parents saw me go, go, go and just attack really big goals, no matter what it was. You know, I was the chairperson for our dance marathon at Springfield when I was a senior and we raised $194,000 and running that was 
a full-time job at 18. And then, you know, two years later, I told my mom, yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. My parents were like, another thing. <laughs> another thing. <laughs> so I think that it was actually very different. My sisters and I were just on completely different paths. And so that almost gave me a little bit of extra pressure because I was sort of always the star and I was expected to perform. I remember ninth grade, my guidance counselor called me into the office and said, we want to have a meeting with your parents because you're second in the class and we want you to start thinking about college. And that was a lot of pressure at Mm. 14 years old to start thinking about college. And so I think the pressure really came from being an achiever at a young age and saying, what are you going to do in the world? Because you have potential, so you better use it. You know, that's so interesting because your um, your drive and your desire to succeed sounds like it was innate. So it wasn't a pressure that was put on you by mom and dad. Right. right? Um, but yet it really it was a struggle for you to keep up with your own drive. Always. I always yeah. tell my boyfriend, you know, when I'm really down about something in my business, I'm like, my drive is a blessing and a curse because obviously it's a blessing that I I am where I am today and I have the opportunity to impact so many people's lives. But sometimes it feels like a curse because I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop setting a bigger goal. I can barely celebrate once I achieve my goals. And so it's sort of a funny thing I've always dealt with, but I think I've learned to deal with over the years because it really was innate since I was six years old. Yeah. Well, so it did lead to a, a very tough challenge for you in college. Um, we, you know, I'll jump ahead to that because I think it's a very, very big part of your story and what led you to the to the book and your business. So share with our listeners what happened to you at Georgetown, which is a very competitive university. Yeah. So I, I definitely think the competitive aspect of that environment was a was a huge influencer on this situation. So I came to college and I previously had not had really many confidence struggles or any issues with my weight, with my body image, but I was in an environment where so many of the girls around me were obsessed with what they ate and going to the gym. It was the only thing that they talked about in their spare time other than classes and maybe boys or something. But it was really the constant talk. And so I remember being in the cafeteria like two weeks into school and my friends were like, you're eating that? And they were all getting salads with Mm. no protein, no dressing. Like it was just vegetables on a plate and that was their meal. And it was normal. And so I thought, maybe I'm not normal. And truly didn't need to lose any weight, didn't have any any challenges with my health, but I thought, I guess I should just fit in with everyone else. So I started eating the salads too, and I started going to the gym with them for you know an hour-long run. And at some point, I started to feel really deprived. If anyone's ever been on a diet, you go on the diet, and then all of a sudden you're like, I need pizza. But you don't just eat one slice. You might eat four or five And so it started to become this cycle where I would really restrict myself and then I would binge eat. And what's really ironic about it is I I actually gained 30 pounds during my freshman year of college from binge eating. And everyone thought that it was just the freshman 15, but really I was struggling with an eating disorder of this yo-yo restriction binging. And the worst part was no one even noticed because it was so normal. All the girls ate like that. Right. So tell me the moment um, that led to your waking up and understanding that you really did have a problem and you didn't want to live like that anymore? You know, it's funny because it is a moment. I remember it in vivid detail. 
it was the last night of summer before my sophomore year of college when I was home with my friends. My friends were all getting together to go to Applebee's for half price appetizers. And I remember sitting on my bed crying, thinking that I couldn't go because if I went, Either I would not eat at all, I would lie, and I would say, oh, I already ate, I'm not hungry, and I would I would feel horrible because that's no fun, mm-hmm. or I would have no self-control and I would binge eat to the point where I felt very sick afterwards, right. and I hate it feeling like that, but I felt like I couldn't control it, and I remember crying, and I told my mom, you know, this isn't normal, and she- You did tell your mom. I did. Yeah, that's and great. She, she couldn't quite- you know, wrap her mind around it because she didn't have that challenge. But she said, okay, well, you know, what do you think you can do about it? And I said, well, let me see. I think there's a dietitian at at Georgetown. So I looked it up and there was a dietitian and I could go see the dietitian for free with my meal plan. And so I emailed her that night and I made an appointment with her the first day I was back at school. And she completely changed my life. She taught me about intuitive eating, which is a concept that focuses on listening to your body's internal hunger and fullness cues. Yeah, that's great. We're going to come back to that. We're going to go into a break. And I want to hear more about this, this woman who became a mentor for you. Stay with us to hear from Dawn Zier of Nutrisystem for our CEO Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. CEO Watch. Hi, everyone. I'm Dawn Zier here with today's CEO Watch. Today, I want to discuss an important topic that I am personally experiencing right now managing through an integration. As you may know, earlier this year, Nutrisystem was acquired by Tivity Health. Talk about change. That's a big one. As a newly combined leadership team, we've spent a lot of time focusing on the integration and thinking about how colleagues on both sides of the table would be impacted. In many ways, the path is similar to the steps I took when I became CEO of Nutrisystem six years ago. First, communication and transparency are imperative to successfully navigating the intricacies that come with merging two companies. Providing direction on where the organization is going, the end state, is really important. Regular communications are also paramount. We have roundtables, weekly voice messages, newsletters, town halls, and Ask Me Anything calls that deliver vital information and promote discussion. Second, as a leader, listen carefully and listen hard. Take the time to get feedback across divisions and functional areas to understand how the integration is really going. This often takes some probing, but when you're aligned towards success, the conversations flow much more easily. And be open to the feedback and be willing to adapt. Third, redefine the culture. This is an excellent opportunity to take the best from both worlds and blend them to form an even stronger culture. Cultures are living, breathing things that should morph over time, and an integration requires that deliberate thinking around how the culture should change to drive future success. Fourth, assume positive intent and know that how you say things matter. People are naturally going to feel a little tentative during the initial integration phase, so speak carefully. Seek to understand, refrain from jumping to conclusions, and address the elephants in the room so you can move beyond them. And fifth, as leaders, work fast to move from us and them references to a one-team mentality. Thanks for listening. I'm Dawn Zier here with CEO Watch. Have a great week. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Thank you for joining us again. I'm talking to Jacqueline D. Gregorio, who is a very young speaker, author, business strategist, and founder of Clarity in Action Consulting. You've accomplished a lot in your young 24 years of age. And just before the break, we were talking about kind of your moment of understanding that you were living in a way that you did not want to live. And I love first that you shared that with your mom. I think it's so important to not keep those kinds of challenges to ourselves. Tell us a little bit about uh, the, the dietitian at Georgetown that really helped you turn things around. Her name is Allison Tepper, and and she is wonderful. And if anyone is struggling with something like this, I highly recommend you reach out to her. She taught me so much about listening to my body, and I, I thought it was crazy at first. The first thing she told me was, I want you to go buy all of the things that you don't allow yourself to eat. So I went grocery shopping, and I bought cookie cake and ice cream and pasta and all kinds of things that were on my no list. Yeah, all the carbs. You know it. And of course, what happened? I overate them. I binged on them. And she said, keep buying them. And eventually, your body will learn that there's nothing that's off limits. So if there's nothing that's off limits, and you can have it whenever you want it, then there's no need to overeat it. Mm. And so I essentially learned to just stop overeating and listen to my body. And once I was able to do that, I started to focus more on eating healthier and more you know, vegetables and and healthier things, but I never cut out the unhealthy things because that gives me the ability to to balance it just like a budget. Yeah. So let me ask you, did overcoming this personal challenge in your own life give you the desire to want to help the other young women who were your classmates at school? Yes. And I remember very specifically, actually after a sorority meeting, one of the girls in my sorority came up to me and she was like, how did you make so many changes? Like, it was kind of obvious that I was struggling before, though it seemed kind of normal. And I seemed so much happier and so much more confident. Physically, I had lost weight. So that was something that obviously was a physical change. And she's like, I can't seem to to wrap my mind around it. And none of my friends can either. We all have the same problem. And I thought, well, maybe I know something that other people don't know. And how can I package this in a way that can help others. And that's when I signed up for my entrepreneurship class my senior year. And I had an amazing professor named Eric Kester, who on the first day of class told us that he was about to quit teaching. And he had actually resigned from teaching this class a week before. And the dean asked him, well, just try to see if you can rework the class in a way that makes you want to continue to teach. So he backed up a little bit and he told us about how he felt like he was having no impact on his entrepreneurship students because they would come up with fake business ideas that they never started. And what would they learn other than how to write a business plan? Because that's just scratching the surface of what running and growing a business really is. And so one night he was having dinner with friends and he told his friend this whole story and his friend's like, well, why don't you have them write books? Because writing a book and marketing the book, pricing the book and being able to brand 
a whole brand around your book is just like starting a business. So it can give them that exercise in real life. So he told us that on the first day and he said, you're all writing books. And so I immediately knew that I was going to write a book about my struggles with food and start a business around that so that I could help other women in college overcome the same challenges that I had overcome. That was perfect, right? It seemed so fateful for you to take that class, right? It was. And so that was the CUSP method, C-U-S-P method. I want people to to know that and, and check out the book. Tell me what... What were your own key takeaways from doing that? Oh, the most important one was not to fear failure. I failed so many times when I was running Cuspit. Uh, My biggest failures that I love to advertise because I want people to know that failure is the absolute key to success uh, was when I ordered these um, portion plates that I had made. They had little pineapples on them, and they encouraged you to eat a balanced meal, include all the food groups, but not overeat, which was exactly what helped me recover from my eating disorder. And I had to order $10,000 worth of them to get the minimum order quantity. And of course, I had no money. So I started waitressing on campus. I waitressed for about six months, and I had saved up $6,000. And then I still needed 4000 My parents lent it to me. And I ordered these plates. I sold them to my family and friends. And that was great. You know, you could be selling poop and your your mom is going to be like, <laughs> Jacqueline, this is the best poop I've ever seen. I'm going to take all my friends and tell them to get it too. Exactly. Yeah. But the real market testing comes when you're selling it to people who don't know you. Right. And so that's what I was trying to do. And Sue, I didn't get one sale. Not a single sale from someone who didn't know me. Oh. And those plates are still sitting in my grandmother's garage. And that was my first failure. And I remember thinking, gosh, maybe I'm not meant to be an entrepreneur. Maybe I don't have all the right ideas. Maybe I should just give up. And then I remember at the same time, my nephew was one year old and he was first learning to walk. And I remember noticing that every time he would fall... He would get back up again. But the thing that was really special about it was not only that he would get back up, but that he'd be a little better at walking each time. And I just happened to be home for the weekend right after this failure was happening. And by the end of that weekend, he was running. And that's when all the problems started for my sister. But for me, I realized (laughs) that I needed to fall and get back up and learn to walk. And so I started picturing my success like a staircase. And success was at the top. And in the past, I had thought that each step was another goal. But what I realized is that each step was actually another failure. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Um, When we come back, I have a question for you from one of our listeners. Stay with us to hear from Dr. Marianne Ritchie for your health watch and Terry and Maggie for finance. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Health watch. For HealthWatch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Tis the season, late spring to early fall, Lyme disease, an illness transmitted by a tick. Three species of the Borreliella tick cause a broad spectrum of symptoms. Ticks feed on mice and deer, then live on grass and low shrubs. They attach to pets and people walking by. They can't jump or fly. Tick needs to be attached 48 to 72 hours before it can infect you. Symptoms start days, months, or even years later. About 80% of patients have the classic early sign, a red rash resembling a bullseye. In time, flu-like symptoms, fatigue, loss of appetite, headache, stiff neck, sore joints, muscles, 
fever, even weakness or numbness. Without treatment, months to years later, you can have a painful swollen joint like a knee, memory loss, confusion, meningitis, a paralyzed facial nerve, or even heart issues. Usually treated with antibiotics, may improve quickly or take months. Check for ticks in armpit, groin, back of knees. Use tweezers to grab it, pull slowly, gently, and then wash with soap and water. You don't need to keep it, but make note of color and size. Is it attached or resting on your skin? Big and full of blood? Take a picture with your phone. See your doctor if you can't pull it off. Pregnant? Talk to your obstetrician. Not all antibiotics are safe. Lyme disease is not transmitted with breastfeeding, sexual contact, or by sharing eating utensils or drinking glasses. Blood tests take time to turn positive after the bite. So if you have the classic rash, your doctor may treat without a test to avoid delay in treatment. Blood tests can also be falsely positive. At risk, those who work outdoors, garden, hunt, and hike. So divas, wear shoes, long sleeves, and long pants. Tuck pants into your socks. Wear light colors so you can spot ticks. Use bug spray with DEET. Check yourself and your children. Put clothes in the dryer for four minutes when you come inside. Then you won't get ticked on and you won't get ticked off. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. The Women to Watch Finance Watch. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. And we're from Fortis Wealth. Researchers have identified four common attitudes toward money. Money worship, money avoidance, money vigilance, and money status. Money worshipers believe that more money will solve their problems and they can never have enough. They are more likely to overspend on themselves and others and carry credit card debt. Money worship is the most common attitude among Americans, according to research by Dr. Brad Klontz, a financial psychologist at Creighton University. If you're a money worshiper, you can take control of your spending by creating a budget and learning about the different ways to pay off credit card debt. Money avoiders believe that money is bad and they don't deserve it. They may ignore their finances and avoid thinking about money. They may also give away money to others in order not to have it. One option if you are an avoider is to automate your finances, set up automatic 401k contributions, or send money to a separate savings account, for example. Those who are vigilant about money believe that being frugal and saving is important. They may be secretive about their finances and uncomfortable discussing money with others. If you're uncomfortable talking to family or friends but have money questions, do your own research to find the best savings account for an emergency fund, research investment options, or get the right credit card to match your spending. People who hold the belief that money equals status believe that self-worth is equal to net worth and they may be driven to earn more money than their peers. They may also take risk to make money quickly and buy expensive things. If you hold this belief, give yourself a cooling off period before making a purchase. 
You can also make a budget and stick to it to avoid overspending. Recognizing your money personality is the first step toward financial health, according to some financial planners, credit counselors, and psychologists. Experts say that knowing what drives your financial decisions can help you reach smart money goals, whether that's spending less on impulse purchases or saving more for retirement. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Jacqueline, before the break, you described, I I love that you were being observant of your nephew and watching him, you know, fall down and get back up. And that's kind of a, you know, a story that's been shared before, but you really took it and looked at it a completely different way and, you know, um, took some great advice from that as well. And um, I wanted to share with you, I got a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Her name is Amara Briggs. And she said, what advice would you give a parent whose child has an unhealthy relationship with food? That's an amazing question. So I think the biggest thing for the child is not to feel attacked because no one is ready to get help until they decide. And so if a parent is pushing it on them in a way that feels aggressive and makes the child feel like there's something wrong with them, it's going to make them feel worse. But there is a way to help encourage them to get some professional help in a way that makes them feel like you're expressing concern for them and you're on their team rather than, you know, on the other side, on the other team. So I would I would suggest that you express concern from a place of love and suggest that, hey, maybe maybe we can both go together to a dietitian and talk about our eating habits because I want to work on mine too and sort of make it like a team effort. I mm-hmm. definitely think if you're concerned as much as you can, try to get them to professional help. I recommend a non-diet dietitian, um, someone who might be certified in intuitive eating as well. Um, they are amazing at unhealthy relationships with food and and if you can encourage them in a way that comes from love and you know rather than the other side of it i think that they will feel more ready to get help rather than they're they're being forced yeah i think it's key what you said about not um saying anything that would make the child feel that there's something wrong with them right because that's just another challenge in their own path um Tell me, so you've really come a long way, again, in a short period of time, and you're very uh, mature and articulate and confident. You're speaking on a regular basis in front of large audiences, um, universities. You're working with entrepreneurs and business people who are coming to you for advice. But I wonder, I would imagine you still have moments of insecurity. And tell me, when do you feel most insecure and what do you remind yourself of in those moments to, to kind of move past it? Believe it or not, Sue, I feel that I struggle with insecurity more now than ever. And the reason is because as I become more successful, my goals become so large that when I start to go after them and I'm falling short based on my own measures of progress I feel insecure even if what I've already accomplished is amazing. And if something that I would have a year ago been so happy with and proud of, now I'm thinking bigger and more because it's just the innate way that I am. And so whenever I have those moments, I think about, okay, well, what's the next step? 
Sometimes when I'm looking at a big goal or a big dream, if I just break it down into bite-sized pieces and I think, okay, if I can do this this month, then I can double it next month and then I can double it again and again. And sometimes it's even just a small win that is almost unimpactful in your overall journey, but in that moment is transformational because you just needed that little boost and that little win. So I think just when I feel insecure, especially about my path and my career, I say, okay, what is one small thing I can do that will make me feel good and that will move me forward towards my goals, even if it's a baby step? I wonder if your um, insecurity is based more on an impatience to accomplish things. Absolutely. You, are you, would you describe yourself as someone who's impatient and just really needing to continually be I do. And you know, you know why I'm going to say that? I have a theory that impatient people tend to have burnt mouths often from hot food. And I'm always burning my tongue because the food's too hot and I'm ready to eat it. <laughs> and so I know that that transfers into, into my career. And I guess I just know how much value I have to offer to the world. And so I want to be where I want to be now. And it doesn't mean I'm not willing to work for it. And it doesn't mean that I'm not grateful for how far I've come and where I am today because I I really am. But I always want to achieve more. And that motivation is to have the greatest impact on the world and the people I love so that I can take care of them financially and give back to my community. And so I think all these motivations sometimes make me a bit impatient. I want to share a quote with you that um, you said, uh, no one should hold back their unique gifts and talents from the rest of the world. So what I want to know is when you're talking to people, and this is, I think is often the dilemma with young people, boys and girls, they don't know what those unique gifts are. So what do you say to them? Yeah, that's a good question. So I always go back to a couple things. What do you think you're passionate about? What are your hobbies? Forget about career right now. Just think, what do you like to do? And, you know, it might start with, like, I like to spend time with my friends or my family. Okay, well, what else? Well, I like sports. I like watching sports. Oh, what else? Well, I like writing. Oh, well, have you thought about sports, being a sports writer, right? Like, I'll I'll start to ask questions that poke at interests and hobbies and think about how they can translate into a career. But at the end of the day, I think that at 18 years old, when you're deciding potentially to go to college and pick a major You feel like what you decide has to be the thing you do forever. And you feel like if you change your mind, you're a failure. But the reality is every single thing that you do in your life gives you these experiences, which translate into your unique gifts and talents. So you should allow those experiences to shape you into the person you are and move confidently into what feels right. And if you keep chasing that, you'll land on your passion. That's great. Maybe when we come back, we'll talk about what some of good questions are when you sit with entrepreneurs to help them figure out, you know, where they're headed. Stay with us for Mary Manzo for your Tech Watch and Hanadi Shahabuddin for Diversity. This is the Women to Watch Diversity Watch. Diversity Watch. Peace be upon you all. This is Hanadi with your weekly diversity segment. Today's prophetic ethic is hard to explain partly because our society is not very familiar with this ethic, and partly because I'm not really finding the right words to describe what this ethic is about. We're so used to viewing shyness as a deficiency in social interactions, but the shyness I'm talking about here is a little different. It's a shyness that is the result of a conservative attitude. 
a shyness that is resulting from piety and innocence. This specific type of modesty and attitude and shyness is praised in the religion of Islam. It's a feeling triggered by a sense of obligation towards others. People either have this shyness or not, mainly because it's the result of a long practice of being conscious of God, self, and others. Quote, modesty is a branch of faith, end quote, said Prophet Muhammad. I'm not really sure you can practice to be shy that way if you're not already that. You can undo shyness with exposure, but you can't really redo it. It's also one of the virtues of God in Islam. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, Your Lord is modest and generous, and would never turn the hands of a servant without gain when he raises them in supplication. Why is this ethic important? This ethic keeps Muslims conscious of the need of others and aware of the social obligations that impose themselves on people living under one roof or in one community. Prophet Muhammad said, Verily, from what was learned by the people from the speech of the earliest prophecies is, if you feel no shame, then do as you wish. Most people nowadays live in a society that praises doing as you wish, which has its advantages, but the extent to which some abuse that notion ends up affecting a lot of us. How do we draw the line will be up to each and every one of us. Until then, don't forget to connect with me on hanadispeaksout.com. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives. And her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. Recently, I received a text from our social media coordinator, Caitlin. In her text, she said, I have an idea for a segment. The importance of wearing blue light glasses if you engage in a lot of screen time on the phone, computer, or TV. She further told me that she had been wearing hers for over a week and was seeing a difference, was experiencing a decrease in headaches, and she told me they also improve your sleep. Now that got me thinking, just how much time does the average American spend on screen time? My administrative coordinator, Ashley, did some research and she found that the average American spends more than 11 hours per day watching or interacting on the screen, according to a new study by market research group Nielsen. Now that's up from 9 hours, 32 minutes just four years ago. Hmm, could this be why everything looks so blurry on the screen for me these days? I thought my biggest challenge was age and that I need new glasses, but I decided to order a pair of blue blocker glasses for screen time. And sure enough, one week later, I'm not squinting and the screen is no longer blurry. Sunlight is the main source of blue light, but there are many man-made sources like fluorescent and LED lighting, flat screen TV, computers, notebooks, cell phones. And although these devices emit only a fraction of that of the sun, It's the amount of time people are spending in front of the screen that can create a challenge. Now, I'm not saying that blue blockers are the answer, but they can help. And because we spend so much time in front of the screen, make sure you schedule an eye exam regularly and take the necessary precautions when outdoors. And by all means, walk away from the computer or phone from time to time. And to sleep better, stop looking at your notebook and phone a couple hours prior to bedtime. So I leave you with this. It's important to note that not all blue light is bad. Research has shown that high energy visible light boosts alertness, helps memory, and elevates your mood. But like eating ice cream, you want to limit your intake. I'm Mary at PathwaysCG.com. 
Radio 1210 WPHT. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Jacqueline Gregorio this evening. She is a speaker, author, business strategist, and the recent founder of Clarity and Action Consulting. She works with entrepreneurs who are just really looking for advice and tools to kind of take their business to the next level. And one, I agree with you that the best thing to do when trying to guide somebody or help somebody is to ask the right questions. So do you have maybe your top three questions that you ask when you're sitting with someone for the first time to kind of get them to understand what they should be doing. Absolutely. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what would be the thing that you would be so excited to tell your best friend or your mom about that you were doing? Whether it's, I landed a job at this company or I started this business or this blog, what would be the thing you'd just be so excited to tell everyone about? I think that's a great way to start thinking about what really makes you tick and what really you're passionate about. And from there, you can think about, okay, how can I make this into a career? How can I turn this into a business? Depending on what that answer is. Uh, some of the other things I like to ask about are, you know, what do they do in their free time? Like, what are what are their interests? I think a lot of times we feel like our interests have to be hobbies and then we have to have a career. But I don't believe that. I believe there's a way to combine both. If you're an artist, you should be able to do art in a way that makes a great living and fulfills your passions. And so um, finding out what you're passionate about and what you actually choose to do in your free time that you're not getting paid for Mm -hmm. is another great question to start to guide you towards what you really should be chasing. And then the last thing that I would say is, is really important to consider is, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? I think the 10 year question is overwhelming. And for a long time, I was on a path of, I have no idea. It just felt too far, Mm. but five years I could digest and I could think, okay, in an ideal world, if I could do anything and if I was going to try, I knew I would be successful. What would I do five years from now? And that really started to guide me on where I wanted to go. And I think that's another great question to ask young people. That's not so intimidating. Here's a question I always think about. Do you believe that some people are actually not suited for entrepreneurship and that perhaps they will be happier and they're better suited to work for someone else? I do. And I've worked with entrepreneurs, actually, who thought they wanted to be entrepreneurs and have started. And they realized that they didn't really like it that much. And it wasn't impatience or the fact that they weren't succeeding immediately, but it was that they had another passion and when they had free time. I think this is a really good, that's why the free time question is so important, test of what you're really excited about. If you have 30 minutes, would you rather work on your business or do something else? And if if you don't want to work on your business in that free 30 minutes, then you probably don't want to be an entrepreneur or maybe it's not the right business mm-hmm. for you. Right. Yeah, that's a great a great thought. Um, I wanted to talk to you about social media and how do you think it affects girls' self-esteem? I think 80% of the time it's very negative for self-esteem because young girls compare themselves to other people and this can be in physical appearance or it can be in career, um, success, relationships. They see what other people are doing and it's their onstage presence. It's like if I'm giving a speech and I'm on the stage and I've practiced the speech 50 times. That's why I don't say like or um or hesitate. But they think that that onstage presence is the same thing as my backstage when I'm 
brushing my hair, trying to fix my lipstick last minute, changing from flip-flops to heels. And so we get this false reality of what other people's lives are like. And so the thing that I always recommend when girls struggle with comparison is, well, rather than compare yourself to that person, why don't you see if you can learn from them? Why don't you maybe make sure maybe it's a celebrity and you can't reach out to them. But I see a lot of comparison in in career. And so I say, well, why don't you reach out to someone who's in that position that you want to be in and ask them how they got to where they are. And if they could go back five years, what would they recommend you do today? Because most people learn things on their journey and maybe they don't wish they could have done them differently because they're happy they got to where they were, but they sure as heck know a way to get there faster once they've gotten there. You know, I was thinking about all of the um, speaking engagements you have had at universities, and, and I'm wondering if there's a common question that young people come up and ask you at the end. A lot of times I get asked about what they should do in their career because they feel conflicted between Mom and dad want them to do this. They think they should do this. A professor recommended this. Mm. And they feel so lost. They they are desperately seeking clarity in their direction. Mm. And they don't know where they should go. I always tell them to listen to their intuition and do what feels right. And the people who love you will support you through that and continue to listen to it. So if you start something and it feels right for two months and doesn't feel right anymore, you don't have to do it forever. And, and I think that there's this world of corporate America where you're supposed to work a job for a year. So what if they pick the job and they're in it for a month and they hate it, right? Like how can they come up with a transition that doesn't get them stuck in something? So I think they have these fears that if they pick something, they're going to be stuck. And what if they don't like it? But we live in a world where the millennial generation is completely transforming the way we work mm. with so many work from home jobs or freelancers and entrepreneurs. And so I think that they can pave their own path. They just have to be confident in themselves. Yeah. And I think there is so much um, we talk about information overload on the show a lot. And you're so right. So you get advice from parents and advisors and friends and um it's so critical to to really find the answer, you know, inside yourself. That's that's where the truth will be. Um, if somebody were to ask you, so Jacqueline, what what is your career? What do you do for a living? You know, we've been you've written a book, you started a business, um, you're speaking, and now this clarity and action consulting is your current, I guess, um, stream of revenue, right? So if someone were to ask you, what what exactly do you do for a living? How would you answer that? So it's actually very specific. So I work with coaches and consultants and I help them scale their businesses without burning out through the launch of a high ticket program. And the reason I do that is because when I first started my consulting business, you know, after all these students coming up to me asking me how to start businesses. So, you know, I was spending all this time helping young people start businesses. Then I found myself trying to work with people one-on-one and it was It was really just a direct path to burning out because how could I work with someone for an hour of my time, then try to get more clients, then try to do social media, speaking, all these other things, write a new book. I mean, I was so overwhelmed. And so one of my business coaches suggested to me, why don't you do group coaching? And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. And it completely transformed my business because I was able to reach a large number of people, have a great impact and bring in a large number of revenue into my business through the training program. So tell our listeners, yeah, quickly about the training program. So if you want to learn more, there's a free training that you can start with and it's at growmybusinessexponentially.com and it teaches you how to launch a group program if that's something that speaks to you.
Okay. And you are you mentioned you're writing a new book. <laughs> um, Stop getting in your own way. And then what's the rest of the title? A No BS Guide to Creating the Business of Your Dreams. Okay. And what would you say is at the heart of the book? What would be the one takeaway you'd want people to get from it? The one takeaway is that it's a combination of mindset and action to create your best life and your dream business. But at the end of the day, it's all on you and your choices. And it goes back to everything from your thoughts to your words, which then cause your actions. And so every result you get in your life is a direct result of you. So if you're not happy, it's time to change something. Yeah, that's wonderful. Jacqueline, you're you're such an inspiration. And I hope that um, we get a lot of people tuning in to hear your story and we'll be following you. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you so much to my sponsors and advertisers for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title. Have a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.